0: Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here by myself in the studio today, bringing you a different kind of podcast episode than we have before. We're kind of veering off from our normal... Type of episode, our normal leadership topic, but today we want to talk about what's really going on in the world and how we as Christians and as next generation leaders should look at it. Because I believe that we're we're quickly approaching a crossroad in the world, and as next generation leaders, the ones who are going to take the torch and run further with this issue, we have a choice to make. Are you going to stand up and make a difference, make a change, stand up for what is right, what is true, or are you going to apathetically watch this pass you by? You have a choice. and The choice is yours. Or are you going to make it? I believe it, 50, 60 years, you're going to be sitting in a recliner one day and your grandchild's going to come up to you and say, Grandpa, Grandpa, we learned about the year 2020 today in history. And, and they said your grandparents might live through it. And I was wondering if you could tell me more about what happened that year. Where were you? What would you do? What, where were you when George Floyd was was murdered? And what are you going to say when you look back at that grandchild? you say, I had posted a, a black screen on my Instagram. That's what I did. We're going to say, I went out and had dialogues with people who were hurting. I mourned with people who are mourning. And I, and I created unity by having conversation, by entering a community that I'm not necessarily comfortable with or I'm not necessarily used to. And I had a dialogue with them. And I learned and I grew. That's what I want to say I did. And so that's why we we did this conversation. We had this conversation today. We have two guests, which is also new to the podcast. Just a lot of newness today. First we have Lee Bratcher. He's the executive director for the Institute of Global Engagement here at Dallas Baptist University, but he was also a former police officer. So he brings us incredible insight onto what it's like to be a police officer during this time and, and what's going through the mind of a police officer when they're when they're approaching a crime and even ways that we can reallocate funds that go to the police department to make it more beneficial, make it more helpful to the community. I don't believe we should defund the police. If anything, we should fund them more, especially now. But maybe we reallocate resources, but we'll we'll talk about that later as well. Our second guest is Marcus Goody Goodlow, who's he's a fellow and a, and a speaker at the at the Institute for Global Engagement here at DBU and he lives in LA. But what's what his unique perspective is today, he's an African-American man who just got back from the streets of Minneapolis, right on the asphalt where George Floyd was brutally murdered. And he, he lets us in on what it's like to be there right now, what the people are saying, what the people are thinking. It's incredibly insightful and, and it and it breaks your heart. But I want to challenge next generation leaders to really read the facts, what's going on here, to research. Who are you listening to? Who who are you talking to? People are hurting right now. And it's your time to stand up and make a difference or to let it apathetically pass by. I don't know what you want to do. I don't know what you want to tell your grandchild one day when you're 80 and they ask what you did in 2020, but I for sure want to say I was a part of the initiative for change. I didn't sit on my heels. I was on my toes and I was ready for action because action is the only thing that will progress us forward. As soon as white brothers and sisters, as soon as black brothers and sisters are willing and humble enough to reach across the aisle, grab hands and say, we are all under the same God. We are running the same race. We are equal. All lives matter. Black lives, white lives, green lives, whatever you are, your life matters because you are an image bearer of the cross of Jesus Christ. And once we are humble enough to know that, to say that, to communicate that with one another, we can walk towards progress, towards unity together. And I want to challenge every listener right now to do that. Find someone to have a dialogue with, learn something about their culture, learn to love people. And we got to do it together. Because the only way that this American experiment will continue forward, we'll continue to be the greatest country on earth to flourish, is if we unify, we link hands, and we live out the dream that Martin Luther King had many years ago. We have the ability to do that. We're at a turning point in our country's history, a turning point that is leading us to a crossroad, and you have a choice to make. What do you want to tell your grandchild when you're sitting in that recliner many years from now? I want to say that I was a part of a change. I hope this conversation is helpful and I hope if you found it helpful, you reach out to us, you leave us a review, you reach out to Lee Bratcher, to Goody Goodload, to myself, ask questions, dialogue, disagree with us. We want to learn. We want this to be an academic experience to where you are enlightened and you grow and you, you dive and dig deeper. And from this episode, have dialogues with other people, research what we said, look it up, learn for yourself. Because the only way that we can push towards progress and unity and it needs to happen now and it starts in the hearts of the next generation. Let's go. Let's do it now. Make a decision. What do you want to say to that grandchild? So here it is, without any further ado, my conversation with Lee and Goody. Well, Goody, Lee, I'm excited for this one. This one's gonna be fun. Uh, Really because it's so, it's so in tune with what's going on. We're living in an amazing time. One day when we sit with our, our kids and grandkids and they're going to be reading through the history books and asking, what did we do? What were we doing during this time in history that they're learning about? And 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 I hope and pray that the people listening to this and the people on this, on this call uh, will be able to look back and say, I stood up for this. I did this, this, and this, and, and be able to teach the next generation at that point how to handle these situations. But before we we jump into anything crazy, introduce yourself. Goody, who are you? What do you do? How do you get to where
1: you are? Hey, great to be with you, Zach, and all your listeners. And of course, my good friend, Lee. I am Goody Goodlow, Marcus Goody Goodlow. I'm an adjunct professor at Dallas Baptist University. Proud husband of one amazing woman, Lucy Goodlow, 22 years, a dad of two Hannah and Josh. Hannah, who is 18, just turned 18 two weeks ago, and my Josh is 16 tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, literally tomorrow. And so, serve uh, at the pleasure of our great president, Dr. Adam Wright, and uh, I'm also a member of a really, really cool uh, organization called uh, IEG, and I'm trying to think of the acronym. What does that stand for? Um, Global Engagement. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) <laughs> did I get that right? Did I miss, did I miss well, it? Off? IGE, but you had the right letters. Yeah, I had the right letters. Uh, right. So anyway, I uh, fell off of that and I'm in Southern Cal. That's, right. That's right, hanging out. And
0: we Come won't on. torture the listeners with how amazing the weather is like you just did to us, but thanks for being with us, Goody. Lee, who are you? What are you doing? Introduce
1: yourself.
2: Sure. So Lee Bratcher, the Executive Director of the IGE Institute for Global Engagement at DBU. Um, I uh, live in Richardson, Texas. My wife, Becca, we've got two little girls. They are uh, two and almost four. And yeah, I'm excited to be on the podcast uh, in the past. So I was a police officer for several years and um, have a a background in law enforcement and military uh, as well. So those are kind of some of the career fields that I did prior to jumping into academia.
0: Well, uh, we're excited to have you both on the two unique perspectives here, uh, from the police officer to the African American man living in this time, living in this just crazy, uh, time in history. And we get to learn from it, but Goody, I don't want to waste any time. Uh, let's jump right in. You are are fresh back from Minneapolis. Uh, just, I'll just give you the mic. What are your thoughts? Um, what, what are your reflections what's the weather like in Minneapolis and not talking about the weather
1: outside? What, what's sure. going on? up here? <laughs> You know, um, the Germans have a, uh, a, a saying or phrase it's uh, called zeitgeist, zeitgeist. And it has to do with, um, it has to do with the sort of the mood, uh, the expressions, the tensions, uh, the atmosphere, The ethics, the morals of a particular time or period. And so it's this idea of the events surrounding Minneapolis capture the zeitgeist of this moment. In other words, as I've said before, I think we're at the most pivotal uh, moment of history in my lifetime. I'm 49 years old. In 49 years that I've lived on this earth, we have never faced a more critical time. There I say, for our nation, most certainly for those of us who are followers of the teachings of Jesus for the church. So when you look at that, you know, we can see these sort of moments, these influx in history, at least in my lifetime, right? right? We see the L.A. riots of 91, 92. We see things like Katrina, 2005. We see hate crimes carried out. and and uh uh in 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 places like oklahoma city after the bombing um Mm -hmm. in what is that 95 i think uh, we see these moments that cause racial division the oj trial yeah you know we, we can all remember those events remember those we remember those moments where we were maybe what where we were and i remember I remember the LA riots, I'm from Los Angeles. I remember Reginald Denny, seeing that image of him being brutalized on the streets of South Central LA. I remember seeing the store, not far from where his truck was, where my grandfather, I remember as a young kid, brought my first pair of cleats. It was the first store to go up in flames. Mm. I remember where I was in 2005, watching Katrina. I was actually in school with DBU. But this moment, and the events thereafter, regarding the murder of George Floyd will be remembered, not just for events, but for what we did hmm. subsequent to the event. Yeah. I can't tell you Zach, I can't tell you Lee. I can't tell you to your listeners what I did after each of those defining moments can't tell you don't even remember, yeah. but this one is different from NASCAR saying we're not going to fly to Confederacy mm. from the joint chiefs of the military saying, you know what, we're we we should not use our troops to push back on peaceful protests on the streets. Right. Yeah. That same military who's now working with our armed Services committee in the Senate saying, we're going to look at bases that are named after Confederate generals and soldiers, Fort hood and different places like that. The NFL, The commissioner saying, we were wrong. Black Lives Matter. Mm. The president of the largest evangelical institution in the country, the Southern Baptist Convention, said Black Lives Matter. Presidents of universities, CEOs of companies, from airline industry to entertainment, no organization, no entity, including police departments and the church will be left unscathed in terms of this question, what did you do? Hmm. And so what, so what I did was I went to Minneapolis, I wanted to, in the words of the esteemed scholar Cornell West said, I wanted to bear a prophetic witness as to this zeitgeist moment as to this moment this influx in history that has caused a seismic political spiritual emotional economic and moral shift in the landscapes of history and christendom
0: hmm.
1: and it was uh it was breathtaking yeah it was a, it was a, it became more than a trip at some point it was a masa it was a burden i had to go I, I went to grieve. I went to mourn. I went to listen. I went to inquire. I went to challenge. I went to this, I went there to search and I'm still processing if I'm honest. So that's the sort of 35,000 foot view. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: that's amazing. I, w- I would love for you to even just do processing on this, uh, Uh, on this episode we're we're here to listen and and lee and myself both as white men want to learn want to listen want to grow and and so take us onto the streets of minneapolis what what's going on what what are the people saying up there what are are they feeling
1: sure you know in most um and most people um first of all i need to say thank you to to lee and the folks at ige you know when i was um when I was preparing to leave, I decided the Wednesday night of the Saturday I left. Like you, I was on the couch watching the events unfold on uh, many cities across the country. Just The scripture talks about the earth groaning. I was watching the earth groan in so many expressions. And I told my wife, I called her into my office, and I said, I must go. In the midst of COVID, my mother-in-law who lives with us is, in fact, today's her 80th birthday. Wow. Happy birthday, Mara. Happy birthday. And so I've been grounded. In fact, my last trip, as you know, Lee, you know, Zach, I travel and speak for a living, work with right. leaders and leadership development. And I had just met with the Dallas Baptist University Athletic Department and my our good friend Connor Smith. That was my last trip. That was March 4th. Wow. And so I've been grounded because of COVID. But I got on a plane, double masked up <laughs> Flew out on a Saturday. In fact, got to the airport, had a standby ticket, could not get out. Plane was not full, but they was the seats were limited because of social distancing. Right. So two flights, a 7 a.m. and 11 a.m., and it wasn't looking good for the second one. And thankfully, you know, literally put the plastic down to catch a flight that I was not even booked for and got on a plane. By 2.30, I was at my hotel. By 3.00. I was in an Uber and was out on the very pavement and uh, asphalt where George Floyd was uh, murdered. Talked to people. You know, some of these things are posted on my website, some of these conversations, some of the images. But right before I left, you know, I had uh, written an article, and I meant to mention this earlier, and we'll get into this later about practical steps, but the Institute for Global Engagement and Lee and his team, while I was on the plane, you know, I had just written an article on COVID, and I just thought, you know, there's, there's a chance that we could get this out. And I sent it to Lee. And I believe, Lee, your team was working on a Saturday. Because I remember being in flight and uh, being able to get some messages. And by the time I landed, that piece was now was available for people. It's entitled, uh, I think, What Can You Do? Yeah. And so, but anyway, my conversation were with business owners, some activists. I would say a third of the people on the ground I met with were white. White students, young people like you, Zach, um uh couples, uh college students, moms, single moms, uh parents, uh um uh, uh I saw people hurting. People were uh, I, I came both Saturday and Sunday. I came back that Sunday, put on my my clergy collar. Uh, your listeners may not know I'm also a ordained minister and I'm an associate pastor, I do I'm a teaching pastor, but um I wanted to be a visible priestly expression of God's love in that space. And so I talked to people, cried with people, prayed with people. People came out of their, uh, the surrounding suburbs who were not even living in Minneapolis proper to just literally come to lament and to help clean up. I'm not joking. Sunday morning, as many of you would come with your scriptures in hand, either on your phone or in a Bible, people came with dustpans. And brooms and trash bags, and they were starting the process of literally healing and cleaning up. And so it was very moving. Uh, and then, of course, days in the days that follow, our nation continued to uh, we continued to see um, you know marches, peaceful demonstrations, and some not so across the country. And so um, was there for two and a half, three days in Minneapolis, and came back I think that Monday afternoon. Early evening, had to get home because we had a curfew, right? right uh, six o'clock curfew in play that Monday. I got in at five twenty, and so my wife said on the phone, "Hurry, hurry off the plane. We got to get home before the, before the, before curfew."
0: Yeah. I mean, similar to Dallas, we have a curfew. I was driving through downtown just the other day and, and right outside of the curfew zone was one of the bridges to get into Dallas. And I don't know if they just didn't realize that it was right outside the curfew zone, but I'm driving as I, cause I need to go across this bridge and all of the protesters from the, I guess, DFW area went to this bridge cause it was outside of the curfew zone. And I, I mean, I couldn't cross, but it was just an amazing picture to see. I would never seen that many police cars in my life. And people marching, protesting across this bridge, not doing anything. You can't loot anything on a bridge. And they're just, <laughs> they're just protesting. And, and it, it was an amazing sight to see all of these people rallied around one event that happened. But we know that this has been something that has built up over time. Right. And then this one event, the, the, death of, the tragic death of George Floyd, sure. really took it over the edge. And it was the, the tipping point of this issue. Sure. So uh, that's why I want to ask you, Goody or Lee can comment on this of just what has it been like, I guess, as an African-American man, just the buildup of this, this, now we have the term, the systemic racism, the the buildup of this issue that has now tipped over with the tragic death of George Floyd. What is that like for you? What, what can you say to, to, to white people say, this is what it's been like uh, sure. for me?
1: Yeah. And, and Lee, I'd love to hear your perspective on this too, but it, yeah. you're right. It's more than just uh, an event, you know, in her book, white fragility, which is literally unavailable now on Amazon yeah, uh, because of um, it just being in so demand written a couple of years ago. Um, but um, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, man, this is a written by a white woman academic up in the Pacific Northwest. Her book is ever so timely. Now it's one of the things I recommend people strongly get but in fact our our beloved um, chancellor i uh, just was on the talking with him and i know he's ordered that book but it's it's mod aubrey it's botham sean from dallas yeah it's atiana jefferson it's brianna taylor it's brianna taylor mm-hmm. it's jonathan ferrell it's renisha mcbride it's stefan clark it's jordan edwards it's jordan davis it's alton sterling it's Ayana jones it's mike brown yeah it's the Charlton Nine is Trayvon Martin, and I'll explain those in a minute. It's Sean Bell. it's Oscar Grant, it's Sandra Bland, it's Philando Castillo in Minneapolis, by the way. It's Corey Jones, it's John Crawford, it's Terrence Crutcher, it's Keith Scott, it's Clifford Glover, it's Claudia Reese, it's Randy Evans, it's Yvonne Smallwood, it's uh, Amu Diala, it's Walter Scott, it's Eric Gardner, it's Freddie Gray, it's Christian Cooper, it's George Floyd. The reason why we recognize those names is not simply because of their death, but because how they died. Right. You said, well, what about, you know, you mentioned Trayvon Martin. You mentioned a, the uh, Charlton Nine. Nine people studying in a Bible study on a Wednesday night were massacred by a white perverted extremist. A young man your age killed them. Uh, a, a Trayvon Martin killed by a Hispanic, although some would say he identifies more as a white person uh and, and 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 on the basis of just being a a, a citizen visionality uh, uh willing to uh, express justice or meet out justice on the pavement on the streets there and so when you say goody what do you mean systematic race what you, here it is well when, when 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 the charleston nine suspect is arrested they have identified his vehicle they have identified his clothing they had video on what he looks like Lee, they, they, they take him in a felony, not even really in a felony stop. They, I don't think they made him get on his knees, but they certainly, guns drawn, they arrest him before taking him to the jailhouse to take him to get a burger and some french fries. The day of his hearing for pre-trial, for, for, for pre-tri- the families, even the day of, the day after, expressed forgiveness of this brother. We have a system that allows for Trayvon Martin to be accosted and shot down and then used against him as stand your ground defense? And he's gunned down, shot point blank in the chest. It's Ahmaud Aubrey who's running in the middle of the day, who gets accosted by two white men, who when they shoot him, we now know the third, used his truck to help block him in. We now know this from the pretrial. The detective has now stated racial epithet was said over him as he lay on the ground. The police arrive on the scene, Lee, and the police see probable cause based upon this asking of questions and witnesses. They call the district attorney's office at home. The district attorney at home, call her at home. She tells them to stand down, they go home. The mom is told, Wanda Cooper is told, your son was killed in a burglary disturbance. He was involved in a burglary and he, his life was taken. That's what she knew in February, that was it. We don't have the videotape, we never know. Right. A system allows for two. His gun license was su- his concealed license was suspended. Right. Worked for the district attorney's office as a detective, was retired. So the DA, as you know, Lee has people who go out and do investigative work. He was an investigator for the DA's office, I meant. He's he's got a suspended. He just has to spend the license. The idea that me and my son Josh would get in my wife's Dodge truck, drive into suburbia, take a pick, shoot down a white person on the suspicion of him not taking something, of being in a place that we don't even own. It's not even our place. And then we get to go home and sleep in our beds mm-hmm. for two and a half months. And so when we talk about a system, when we talk about system, systemic racism, Basically, what D'Angelo argues is racism is not an act. It's a system. It's structures. See, four officers in that same Minneapolis Police Department, three years ago, racial appetites were hung on a Christmas tree in a break room. Ornaments were placed on the tree, consistent with racial stereotypes. Picture fried chicken, some uh, Swiss malt liquor beer, some Kool-Aid, some other racial derogatory images. An investigation had pursued uh, ensued. Do you know three and a half years later, 2020, do you know that matter is still not resolved? You know Minneapolis has had 11 homicides by death at the hands of police officers, 10 of which have been African-American. Do you know of a budget of $179 million, you know 90% plus of those officers don't live in Minneapolis where they police? Goody, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? You police differently if you know the people you police. Hmm. Look, I look over. Oh, that's that's Officer Lee Bradshaw, worship worshiping next to me. Right. He shops at the same Whole Food. I saw him on the running trail in my neighborhood. He's not coming in to police me. We he is of the community whose occupation happens to be a police officer. Right. So as African-Americans, we see there has been a long, uh, dark history involving law enforcement and people of color. This goes back to times of slavery. Policing in America was birthed not as some fidelity to nobility and and, and, and honesty, decency, and integrity of maintaining peace and order. No. Police units came about as a result of tracking down slaves, slave patrols. And then after slavery, Jim Crow. And after Jim Crow, segregation. And after segregation, we saw the issue of civil rights. And all throughout those eras, when you think of those images, aside from African-Americans being in those images with dogs and billy clubs and, and, and abuse, who are the people abusing them? Who are the people clashing with the John Lewis's on the Ed, uh, Edmund Pettis' bridges? The police. And then we come on up to the 70s with Nixon and the 80s with Reagan in the era of law and order, a term we hear now. Those are dog whistles. As African-Americans, we know we're familiar with those terms. And this idea of goody, you know, just a few bad apples. Mm. Do you think all police? No, of course not. I don't think all police officers are bad. I do think the system. I I do think their policies. I do think their structures. I've been to Washington. Lee, I know you've been to Washington. Now, I've lectured there. Lady Justice is supposed to be blind, right? The scales. But as African Americans, we really believe that she's peeping because when it comes to people of color, and so we can't, you know what? There are some jobs we can't afford to have bad apples. Right. Chris Rock, the noted prophet, poet, said, and comedian, said this way. He said, You don't hear American Airlines say, Hey, most of our pilots land the planes on the ground. But then a few bad apples like to land them inside of mountains every once in a while. Right. We can't afford to have, listen, police officers leave, you being a former, you operated with the full weight and authority of the state of Texas. You have the power to end a person's life. Supreme Court ruling some years ago gave broad latitude and discretion for officers to use up to and beyond deadly force. And all they have to say, all the, you know how hard it is to prove what was in a person's mind? If a police officer says, I felt my life was threatened, or I was trying to stop this suspect because he or she was threatening the life of others, that latitude is very broad. So when we see these events, it's not just a one-off. It's a system. Yes, there are white people who have felt have been victimized by police brutality. We saw that in Buffalo, New York. A 75-year-old white man, peacefully protesting, approaches officers on the police report. Read the police report. I challenge your listeners, your students, you're supposed to be researchers. Read the police report. Don't go on Fox. Don't look at NBC. Read the police report yourself. No. He tripped. Everybody who looked at the video could see didn't trip. So we've had officers to sign off on that report. And then, when the two officers are being held accountable, fifty-seven of his colleagues resign immediately from the Emergency Protective Force—not from the department itself, but the department in Buffalo, uh, Upstate, had a, has a protective force that goes out in emergency contingency situations. They resign their positions from that force in protest of their two colleagues being held accountable. That's a systemly. That's a system. It's a system.
0: Yeah. Lee, I want to get your, your opinion on this too. We had a really great lunch talking about it as well as a former police officer, the, kind of fighting the, I think a lot of people are, well, there's just a couple bad apples like Goody was saying, which, and wanting to know that obviously Lee, you're a great police officer. You're a great man. We know your character. And there are a lot of great men out there like you, but, but kind of what's your take on everything that was just said and everything going on right now?
2: Exactly. So, um, I do want to reiterate that there is such a diversity amongst the types of departments, the, uh, the quality of departments of officers across the United States. We were talking about 18,000 different police jurisdictions, but I don't presume to uh, speak for all of them or any of them, just for the experience that I had uh, in a uh, you know, an area, a police department in the Dallas area that was actually a really quality police department. Uh, relatively speaking. Um, So, you know, it is true, though, that it is more of a pervasive culture. Um, And it it starts from the academy. You know, when you go to the police academy, you're shown all these videos of uh, officers didn't kill in the line of duty where they didn't react fast enough. You know, they get shot at a traffic stop because, you know, they weren't... uh, you know, always on that edge, that razor's edge, ready to get into a fight, ready to get into a gunfight or a knife fight at a moment's notice. And um, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's healthy to uh, present brand new officers with with all of these videos and with training that shows, you know, that that kind of basically tells them, hey, if you're not ready to be killed or to kill, you're going to be killed. And the you know the, the saying, let it be uh, judged by twelve and carried by six, uh, unfortunately, is a saying that that still uh, you know, happens and is said amongst officers because of not because we have you know a you know a myriad of poor character officers, which there are a ton of, and we need to get rid of them. But mostly because we have had a system of law enforcement in our country that um, has been in culture, or, or, or that our culture has been such that um, it's it's us versus them. Uh, we're warriors, you know. We're we're uh, sheepdogs, and the you know the citizenry are sheep, and we're trying to protect them from the wolves. And sometimes the citizens think we're wolves and therefore we will have to exert violence on the sheep to let them know that we're sheep dogs. I mean, that's sort of a, an analogy used by uh, an author, Colonel Davidson, I think, in, uh, in a book that he wrote several years ago about uh, the Oodaloop and being able to react quickly enough to uh, violence perpetrated against people. you don't get behind somebody else's uh, reaction time. So, you know, I think that I think I think Goody's right. There there needs to be some major cultural shifts, and it's not that we need to get rid of or defund all of these police departments, uh, but we certainly could reallocate resources within police departments. To um, and we probably should defund a lot of police union activity because uh, unions sort of are a, a hotbed of uh, keeping bad officers on the street. They do serve a legitimate purpose in some instances, uh, but the majority of of the time, from the perspective of the communities they serve, and even a lot of the officers within the unions, the unions, you know, are a negative influence on police accountability. So we need to be paying officers more, which you're going to be shocked that I said that. We want to retain good officers that know how to do community policing, that know how to the police are asked to do a lot of things. They have to be mental health counselors. They have to, be, uh, they have to deal with all sorts of uh, you know, domestic violence or juvenile issues or parent-child conflict, tons of different stuff that is not what you see on cops on TV, which I'm glad they discontinued that show recently. Um, so police are asked to do a lot of things, and it's a very difficult job yeah. to do well. So we need to pay them more so that we can retain them because quality police officers get training on training upon training to do all these different things. Uh, we should probably reallocate resources uh, in a lot of departments, especially in uh, suburban departments, you know, areas are, uh, around cities that are well-funded. You know, they don't need to be getting new police cruisers every year. They don't need to have uh, armored personnel carriers or, uh, you know, Hardware passed down to them from the military. Yeah, of course, some units maybe in Dallas, Houston, LA, New York. We need anti-terrorism. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we don't need to respond to a single person uh, hostage situation in an armored personnel carrier with you know uh, like like we're rolling into Baghdad or you know Kabul or something like that. So there's a lot of money to be saved. I and mean, public, public uh, safety is a very expensive line item in, in, budgets, in budgets for municipalities and cities. Uh, so I think we need to be a little more nuanced when we talk about defunding the police. No, we can't defund the police, but let's be nuanced and say what we, what we can do is spend more of our community budget on social services yeah. uh, and more on salaries for police, but a lot less on, uh, you know, this kind of equipment that we don't need or um, you know, we don't need to fifty active shooter trainings for every one uh, community policing training we go to. That ratio, and, and that's not a real ratio, but that's sort of an exaggeration, but that ratio needs to be brought into better perspective. Um, because as an officer, you know, I went to, uh, I went to probably a hundred domestic violence calls for every foot chase that I got into. And you need to be able to use verbal judo uh, to diffuse that situation in a domestic violence call. And, and very rarely was I in a situation where, you know, the uh, active shooter scenario where, and actually I was never involved in an active shooter scenario situation, but I went to thousands of domestic violence calls and other kinds of calls that just require a lot of unique skill sets. Uh, so, again, I want to compliment and uh, say that I have the, the utmost respect for officers who are doing this in a broken system. Uh, but the system needs to, the system has failed officers and, you know, and, and the officers individually need to take responsibility, too, because they're part of the system. So, you know, while, while one individual officer can only control their own behavior um, as, a, as a group. And you know, collectively held, holding each other accountable, there needs to be more of that. And and I myself probably didn't do a good enough job of that as a rookie officer, or as a few years on the force. Right. Realizing, you know, I need to take a stand in situations where I feel like we're being too, we're uh, we're arresting too frequently, or the culture is we need to arrest, 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 arrest uh, for this, that, and the other, so that this person has a warrant, so that they're if they're in a you know a situation where we need to get them out of that situation, we can lawfully arrest them later on because they had that award from that, you know, left turn blinker or from that speeding ticket or from that jaywalking situation. You know, we need to be out there protecting the community and engaging. In community policing. I know that's going to make me sound like uh, some sort of soft on crime person, and, and I don't care. Community policing, uh, Chief Brown and Dallas. Dow- uh, David Brown, good Am I getting David the, Brown.
0: the, he's in, in Chicago, Chicago now, right?
2: Yeah. He's in he's Chicago him. now. That, uh, that community policing piece is pivotal. It's pivotal. We've got to We've got to press through to officer's minds. Hey, this isn't weakness. This is rank. This is yeah. ability. This is, um, you know, the, the cardinal virtues basically. Yeah. So, that's, that's my soapbox for a second. I do want to say one other thing, and I'm going to turn it back to you, Zach, for, for kind of where do we go from here, but um, I have been influenced greatly over the past couple of years and even specifically the past few months by movies and books about this topic. So I want to throw out, um, I want to throw out 13, which is a great documentary I just watched um, a couple of weeks ago. I want to throw out a book called uh, uh, Just Mercy, which is about mass incarceration and death penalty. Incredible book. If you can pick it up, do it. White Fragility Goodies already mentioned. Yeah. Um, and then there was, a good, there was a good book by Benjamin Watson. Uh, He's a former uh, NFL tight end from Saints. And the book the title is uh, Under Our Skin. It's just an incredible look at the Ferguson Missouri uh uh shooting and sort of how that how Benjamin Watson processed that as a black American and how he you know in the NFL too as a a black player in the NFL like how he processed that and as a parent and all those things so so for the for the listeners that really want to you know I would recommend stay off social media for a little while and get into. Those kind of books mm. until you have educated yourself and have listened to enough testimony and listened to enough, and I and I still haven't listened to enough, so I'm not going to I'm going to shut up and and uh, learn from Goody here in just a second. But no, I will so- recommend those books and those movies wholeheartedly. It has been an eye-opening experience. I tell you what, uh, being a police officer on the streets of Dallas is also an eye-opening thing too. Uh, a good experience in a lot of ways, but also sort of witness some tragedy and some human depravity that I wasn't used to, and witness some brokenness, a lot of brokenness in the system. that uh, I think that we're at a point where we need to have some drastic changes.
0: Yeah. I think that you made so many good points in there about books and reading, staying off social media and, and about Ferguson. Cause I, I'm from Missouri, but I was in, I was in high school whenever the Ferguson deal went on and, and so not really understanding how to respond to it, what to do, how, how to, how to, how should I even look at Ferguson? Cause all I see on TV is that the state that I live in is burning and, and I don't understand why. And so now as a, as a college graduate and, and seeing another thing in Minneapolis, but now it's a, it's a, it's a, countrywide issue. And there's riots in the city I'm living in. I want to lean in and learn more and know how do I look at this? How do I respond to this? But, and there's so many ways to go. And, and Goody, you mentioned the article that you wrote, uh, while you're on that plane and it's out, I encourage everyone to go read it, go find it. But this next section we want to talk about is just where do we go from here? What do we do? And this is where Lee and I will shut up and let you talk. And, and what do we do kind of talk through the article? I'll, I'll lead it through, but speak up was one of the first points you made. What does that look like? How, where? And, and I really want to talk about social media because, and I'll let you go and we can talk about social media a second, but I feel like we just have a lot of social media warriors out there that that are really good at posting. They have the right things to repost from the right people, but, but does your life really reflect what you post? And, and I think that is a huge problem with our society because when we're, we're quarantined, And a lot of people are still in lockdown and it's so easy to hide behind a screen, but you're not actually doing it because in the scenario I talked about earlier when when I'm talking to my kids and grandkids about this time in history and what happened, what they're learning in school, what I don't want to tell them is, yeah, I reposted a lot of great posts on my Instagram story. You know, it's like, I want to be able to say, I went out and did this. I talked to these people. I, I engaged in this community in this way. And I want to be able to say that I did that. And so Goody, how do we speak up?
1: Yeah, no, I think, Zach, you're exactly right. Thanks, Lee, for sharing your insights. Very, very, uh, very critical for our discussion. But, you know, for you, for your listeners, you know, one of the things you can do is indeed speak up. But I often say the words you speak can be bigger than the life you live. Hmm. So when I post, when I tweet, when I talk about issues related, you know, Micah says we are to seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. You know, the scripture says judgment begins in the house of God. In other words, those of us who call us followers of the teachings of Jesus, you know, the onus begins with us. Before we look out there pointing, uh, we got to remember there's a few fingers pointing right back at us. And so, one, I do say speak up. Silence has never been a badge of honor or courage in times of adversity or injustice. Right. There, there, there are no great women There are no great men whose silence is applauded in the landscapes of history as a nation or their communities face issues of injustice. So I say speak up. In COVID, in our restrictions, the one thing you can do is say, this is not right. This is unjust. Do your homework, yep. Right. Investigate, yep. But don't allow that silence, because that silence is a replace in a vacuum, right? So that vacuum then is, has replacement products that come inside it, right? right. What, what is sucking up that silence? You as a student, I'm talking to your listeners. You as professors, you as deans of colleges, as presidents of universities, as business owners, as leaders, as police officers, we've heard now police officers and captains and sergeants and chiefs speak out. The chief of San Antonio among them, he's been just literally outspoken. Um, but speak up. And then we say not only speak up, but we say this to support. Yeah. There are organizations, there are people who are in the fight. So sometimes we get overwhelmed by the bigness of a problem. And we, I've heard this so much from so many people, uh, from, from leaders uh, to, uh, I just talked today, to the deputy chief of the third largest police department in the nation. Don't want to give his name right now because we're working through some things, but he called me basically to say, Goody, we're on fire. We're in trouble. What do I do? What should I do right now? And I just talked him through a number of different things, but one of the things we can do is we can support. So speaking up is different than support. Speaking up is your words. Supporting is your money mm-hmm. and your time and your presence. So one of the things Lee mentioned uh, was um, was the book "Just Mercy," and written by uh, Stevenson, I believe. Stevenson yeah, has crazy. a uh, he has a an expression. Uh, he well, he has an entity that is that is in the fight for issues of justice and equality. And uh, we'll put that up here. It, the name escapes me right now. but I want to say Justice well, Initiative. The Justice Initiative. Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah. What mm-hmm. one more time? Equal Justice Initiative. Equal Justice Initiative. He's in the fight. I challenge your listeners right now after this call, get on that site, Equal Justice, and find the link and give. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, not the NAACP, but make sure it's the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. There's a difference. I don't want your money going to administrative costs and other things. I want it to go to support uh, Attorney Ifo and her work. Why? They're on the front lines. They are bringing uh, 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 courts, uh, a friend, uh, 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 they're bringing cases, a friend of the court briefs. They are in courtrooms. They are going before uh, appeals courts. They are working with victims' families. They are changing policy. They are in the fight. Sojourners, another organization, support individuals. I'm in the fight. You can find out more information about how you can help and get behind efforts that we're doing. I'm meeting and, and doing leadership development. There are people who are, so sometimes we go, man, I, I don't know what to do. I don't have time to do. Maybe it's not even your gift or passion to do. But watch this. Your resources, your time, your presence uh, can go a long way through others. And so my messaging, uh, my, my money, and, uh, uh, and the materials I can muster, my talents, my gifts, whatever, are going to go to support those things and those people to real we'll quickly read. Um, uh, Lee mentioned some books, great books, The Warmth. So part of our, part of the tensions we have in our nation is because we don't know each other's story, particularly we ha- or have a distorted view of the stories that we've heard about a group of people. Do you know the stories of African-Americans and how they helped build this country and how even though they helped build this country, there has never been a time where African-Americans romanticized about their time. Never, not in 400 years, and in the 200 plus years of this nation. So when we hear terms like make America great again, at what period in history do African-Americans fit in that greatness? Go ahead, I'll wait. Because we fought in the Revolutionary War. We became enslaved. We fought uh, in the War of Emancipation. In the, excuse me, we fought in the Revolutionary War, then we fought in the Civil War. Yeah. Our freedom was not given. Segregation, Jim Crow on through civil rights era. I can go on and on. So where do we go? So you need to read. You need to read our story. The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. The New Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. White Fragility, as Lee mentioned. Between the World and Me by Tanisha Coates. That brother, man, is a sharp writer. Between the World and Me. The Michael Eric Dyson Reader by Professor Michael Eric Dyson. And the documentary 13. So educate, inform yourself, know, know this, that racism I say in that article is not an act. It's a system. It's not isolated. It's more than uh, what happened on the street of Minneapolis or in the cul-de-sac in a suburban city in Georgia or what happened in a central park of New York City. A white woman who's a liberal, who gave to Barack Obama's campaign, called the police... On a guy who graduated from Harvard and infused racism, including her pitch and tone, with a sense of urgency. There's a black man. She does that. Not in a vacuum, but in a context in which she can understand and appreciate that that influx could possibly make all the difference in the officers getting there quickly. She knows that history somewhere in the back of her mind. I don't know this woman, but I know this. Her company happens to agree with me because she was Terminated. I know this. Her informing the officers, and then her distressing voice was an attempt to lead, uh, lend even greater urgency to the matter. In large part, for those police officers responding. What, 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 what a disgrace! Yeah. What a disgrace! Reject the narrative. I've already heard it. There's a popular conservative uh, person, or uh, I guess she's on the airways. I'm not gonna mention her name. She's African-American, but her, her, her post has been seen in the millions. And the refrain is, George F- Floyd is not a martyr. I'm not gonna lift him up as a saint. She goes through his record. Abuse, assault, some drug uh, issues, and a drug habit. Had gone to Minnesota though to try to get his life together. But see, get the whole story. Reject the narrative. Jonathan Veal, who was under me at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, one of the men I helped mentor, who now lives in Oklahoma City. You don't know him, but he's been on TV and all the airwaves. He was just on CNN this week. He went to school with George Floyd. So when I'm packing my bags, I'm on the phone and I'm getting a firsthand account of a man who knew this man. And he said, good, he wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes. But let me tell you who this man was. This is the man. When a pastor came and wanted to do a basketball tournament in the inner city project of the Fifth Ward, this is the man who helped put it together. This is the man when that same pastor wanted to do a baptism for the community right there in that housing project. This man kept help kept came and helped set up the baptismal pool. This is a man who called for peace after Ahmaud Abry's killing. George Floyd's character is not on trial. Last time I checked, you can't start a worship service without mentioning. The Psalms and the words of a guy who was a murderer and an adulterer. And dare we lift up the scriptures where we read two thirds of the Testament. The New Testament was written by a guy who had actually helped kill Christians. His name was Saul. So last time I checked, as Jesus was suspended between two thieves on the cross, there was one who in his dying breath was a criminal. So let's let's set that aside. George Floyd is not on trial. Reject the narrative. He who is without sin, cast the first stone. Go ahead. I'll wait. And then I say, to engage your faith. One famous preacher said, you ought to have the scriptures in one hand and the newspaper in another. Because we're at DBU and most of you are affiliated with DBU, you're researchers, you're scholars. I challenge you to research. Don't just click on the TV. Research. Do you know 1,800, 1,881 cases where chiefs of police fired police officers? Over 450 of those officers after appeal were reinstated their jobs back. That's a 25% ratio in a period of time in 2000 to August of 17, one study has shown. That's remarkable. I researched that. Think about that. Chiefs of police fired over 1,800 officers. More than 25% of them got their jobs back for abuse of power. These, I'm abusive of their authority, these police officers. So do your homework. Do some research. Yeah. Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group. Do you know that? I was on the phone last night with one of the leaders in our police department. I was like, do you Wait a minute. With this Justice Department, with the person who's in the White House, they have not even been able to officially authorize that as such. So we have a National Security Department. We have an attorney general's office who have not even been able to label a uh, CF. They have not even labeled it that. How, how, how do you know that? I tell you what's terroristic. I tell you what's a terrorist organization. It's a group of people going to the state capitals and like in Ohio, and Michigan, with assault weapons and confronting uh, state officials telling them and demanding that they open their government back in the midst of COVID. That's terrorist. That's a terrorist act. Who does that? i wait for you to come up with the video images that show people from Black Lives Matter storming and confronting police officers with AR-15s. Go ahead, I'll wait. Who's at Ruby Ridge? Who's the militia groups in places like Idaho? If we're gonna be honest in this conversation, the burden is not on me as an African-American to prove that there's equal contributions to the Malay, to this, to this, to this uh, dreaded nightmare for which we find our country. The onus is not on me. The burden of responsibility, is, as one, as President Kennedy said, this issue is old as the scriptures and as clear as the constitution. And King said, "It still remains the white man's burden, or the black man's burden, and the white, uh, the black man's burden, and the white man's shame. White people have a responsibility to acknowledge, to acknowledge their role. Lastly, read the letter from Birmingham Jail, Martin Luther King Jr. It should be required reading for every person who's a follower of Jesus. Read it, just read it. And then lead. If you are a person of influence, if you have the capacity to bring change, you should be leading." If you have not stopped your department, if you not have re your budget, your hiring practices, listen, if the Southern Baptist Convention President can issue a statement, if NASCAR can issue a statement and do review policy, if the military, who has now set their own record as, in terms of examining the naming of these bases after Confederate generals who took up arms against their own nation, if they're doing the review, if the NFL commissioner what, what, is that, what does that that leave you what are you doing pastors what have you preached on in the last six months what are you preaching on in the next month right uh-huh. so what your platform that you have the scripture says in Ephesians, we were created to do good works what works are you doing to bring good in this situation and then lastly ask and listen Yep. and then resist i have said it over and over i do not advocate for violence i am not a promoter of violence i deplore violence but if you listen you spoke up and criticized Kaepernick for disrespecting the flag peacefully he was never about a flag never bought a flag now you speak up and you criticize people for taking to the streets and some extreme expressions have resulted in the destruction of property. But if your call in condemning them has not been louder than that of condemning those people who stormed the state capitals in places like Michigan and Ohio with assault weapons, or if your call for condemnation and rejection and repudiation has not been louder with that of the murder of James Byrd or these other incidents which I read off, we have visible evidence of of crimes being committed at those charged to protect and serve. I love the fake outrage. I love the fake outrage. And yet we, we, we honor leaders who spew venomous words from their mouth daily. Yeah. Come on now. What, what, what do we, t- Dr. King said, the time is always right to do right. Mm. Lastly, I call on every faith leader. Get your house in order. You have the audacity to stand and to promote, and to stand and uh, uh, um, and and to undergird and to stand in the gap for people at the highest of levels. Yet you don't hold them accountable. Last time I checked, it was Nathan who spoke to power in that of David. It was Samuel who spoke to Saul in power. With your influence, pastors, leaders, evangelical teachers, and preachers you have been afforded access to the highest offices in the nation. At some point, there ought to be outcome to match up to that access. What do you mean, Goody? Well, I don't know. In 2006, during George W. Bush, there were 12 police departments being investigated by the Justice Department for excessive use of force. Under Barack Obama, there were 15 police departments being investigated, potentially for consent decrees under Barack Obama. Do you how, do you know how many ju- departments, uh, police departments are investigating now for excessive use of force? Yeah. I, do I na- need to make it any plainer? And so as I told my my beloved pastor, who I sit up under now, happens to be a white man. As I've told our president of our university, as I've made it very clear to other business leaders, I have been restrained in my words, publicly, in calling out these issues of, at best, inconsistent justice, inconsistent repudiation, inconsistent outrage. No longer. Yeah. Yeah. no longer. Uh, and mm-hmm. so we got to call it like we see it. It's not about being political, it's about Michael 6 eight. What does the law require of you? Seek justice? Love mercy, walk only with God. So that's my challenge to your listeners. That's my challenge to your professors. That's my challenge to your administrators. That's my challenge to faith leaders. This is a zeitgeist moment.
0: That's huge. I I, I challenge everyone to listen, hear that, and then in turn apply it and and take what you've learned and take what you've heard and, and actually make a change. Do something about it. Don't sit on your heels and wait for change to happen. Get on your toes, get on the balls of your feet make something happen. Um, Lee, I don't know if you have any input there. Even we have on here, just what what does it look like for, for a white person to engage in in the culture, uh, in which we are, are, are looking towards, um, I think a great definition of leadership is someone who takes initiative for the benefit of others. and, And how can we take initiative for the benefit of the people who are hurting, who are broken, who are going through this time? What does that look like for us?
2: I uh, think it looks like we need to listen first and learn. And we need to recognize that, especially as uh, white evangelical Christians, we have an extra burden, whether we choose to believe it or not, on this issue, an extra burden of responsibility to understand history and to understand where our ancestors have abused power and the, the Word of God. Uh, justify evil action. Uh, and not even that, I'm not talking 19th century history, although that is certainly an example, but I'm talking about recent uh, And so I think, um, you know, Jenny Greer's comments from the, the SBC and using the phrase back to Black Lives Matter is so important because uh, there's a recognition there that to say all lives matter is sort of missing the point. I don't think anybody who's saying black lives matter is they're not saying only black lives matter. They're saying you're you're misunderstanding the point if you're saying all lives matter in that there's a there's a clear historical context that's that's shown that in a lot of instances the life of that uh black person uh, didn't carry as much weight historically and even today in interactions with um you know, uh, in certain interactions in law enforcement. And, and that is tragic and that is horrible because everybody's made a God. bad. Yeah. Um, I do want to, to bring up one other point and, and make one correction. The author of the book that I referenced earlier, uh, David Grossman, on killing, uh, he's the, the one that writes about the Oodloo. Uh So I also want to point your listeners to a resource page on Bridge Builders at bridgebuilders.org slash resources, the nonprofit in the Dallas area that works in uh, the Bon ton neighborhood. They have a ton of good books on here. All the ones that we've been talking about, you've got just links to all these books. One that we didn't talk about is uh, The Color of Law, uh, written by Richard Rothstein. You know, that's kind of about uh, government-sanctioned segregation after, you know, the civil rights era and in Dallas, it's particularly uh, and, and city particularly shocking. Uh, and I think it'll shock a lot of people, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, uh, you know, this black lives matter idea, I probably would have been fresh. I would have bristled at that, you know, thinking like uh, you know, in the same way that I just mentioned all lives matter why do we have to say that Black Lives Matter? And I, I just didn't get it. No. It was really the education, the worldview broadening that had to, that I had to undergo to be able to uh, sit and speak with the perspective that I do now, which is uh, one of someone who's still trying to learn, still trying to learn more. Uh, my wife and I uh, and our kids last week went to a march, uh, a Black Lives Matter march in the Dallas area Uh, one of the peaceful protests, and just marched and learned and talked to people. And the first thing that we had done in that, that was like that, but we learned a lot. And we um, want to do more things like that uh, because Christ calls us to action in regards to loving our neighbor. Working for the peace and prosperity of the city. Is here, my twenty nine, and those things require us to be in spaces where we don't, we're maybe a little less comfortable. We don't understand. We need to learn. Our dinner table, you know, the, the level of uh, diversity and inclusion that we want to experience is will only go so far as who sits at our dinner table. We have people over from, you know, for dinner, families yeah. over or friends over for dinner. Uh, and that looks different for college students than it does for families. You know, families have a dinner table, have people over for dinner at their house. College yeah. students, you know, you could uh, serve them ramen. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Translate that however you need to translate it. I see. Um, but I just want to to point out the the um, the onus on us as white Christians and specifically evangelical Christians says uh, to, to know the history, to know where we failed, to be humble about that. And uh, not to say, well, that wasn't my generation, so I'm not responsible for it, because that's a cop out. And that's, um, I,
1: I yeah, think in, that's, in on that Yeah, uh, in that book, White Fragility, real quick, she talks about that very, she has a number of statements that are often made. One of my best friends is Black, or my sister's cousin is married to a Black person, or hey, I wasn't even around when that stuff happened. I, I, I might have privilege. I'm a white privilege. I work for everything I've done. And, he's, and she says, white privilege is like a uh, denial of such. as like a person, white person walking through society and on their left and right, having someone stuff money into each side of their pocket and them continuing on their way, never acknowledging such. You know, it's just kind of like oblivious. And she talks about how as an African-American is something that you're constantly aware of. You know, when I was in school, Zach, there was a test. There were these tests, and I used to struggle with them so much. Sometimes they would be sentences, sometimes they would be images. And the test question would simply say something like, which one of these is not like the other? You know, as a black man, in this triage presentation here, it's pretty obvious which one of these is not like the other. Now, magnify that in every interaction, in every board meeting I enter, every lecture hall I enter, every pulpit I take, every consultation, every bank loan I apply for, every car I've gotten for and went to a dealership for. Every Those places, every job I apply, I enter the room and more times than not, the person I'm sitting across from doesn't look like me. And so, when we don't recognize that, when we're not sensitive to that reality of what that must feel like, we have a tendency then to operate with blinders. As in his book, Howard Thurman in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he talks about Jews in first century Palestine who were constantly pressed by the Roman government, where they could worship, what they were to pay their taxes, like literally, The bread that they received daily came from Caesar, from their ruler, from their government. They were rationed. And so Howard Thurman, the great theologian who's now left us, he wrote how, comparatively speaking, in the 50s and the 60s, in the era in which he lived, how I use a historic term, Negroes, blacks, lived with their backs constantly against the wall. places we could go. The place I live here now, we're down the Beach, had a sundown rule in the 60s. You literally, as a black person, could not be here in this city in the 90277. You could not be here if that sun had set. Mm. And so he talks about being constantly aware of living with your back against the wall. Your options are limited. I got to tell my son, bro. We don't buy you hoodies. My son does not have a hoodie in his closet. Can't wear them. Before COVID, he went to church one Sunday without a belt. I like to have a heart attack. He's up in the band playing. I was like, dude, you cannot have your pants down. No, 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 no. no. Because I don't even want my son to be perceived as being connected with with a gang or anything. I don't want him to be profiled in that way. I've talked to my son about what we do if we are pulled over. What he is to do is I told my son three weeks ago, son, your goal should be to get home. You let dad handle whatever comes in terms of a. if you get pulled up, don't go mouth back. Don't go. T- it's yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. I've talked to my son. My colleague and my pastor, he has to talk to his son about that. He said, good. I, it never even dawned on me to talk to my young kid, Silas, about what you're talking about. And so these are the realities in which we live. I'm so thankful for, you know, Zach, you reaching out and uh, Lee for your work and advancing the ball with the IGE. And then, of course, having me on board as a fellow has been a great honor. And, you know, I think this is, again, the most critical moment in, in my lifetime. And my, my hope is that listeners, you have been made to feel uncomfortable. No. You have been challenged. You have been caused to have a say moment, a pause moment where you say, yeah. What is it that the Lord requires of me? Am I seeking justice? You're seeking it. You know, am I loving mercy? I close with this story real quick. Martin Luther King Jr. tells the parable of the Samaritan in a great sermon he preached where he talks about the responsibility we have. He said Jesus tells this parable to a rich young Jewish man who inquired about this issue of who is my neighbor. And when Jesus says uh, there was a man who fell victim on the Jericho road, a road that was known to be dangerous and to have bandits and thieves lying in wait. I was just on that road five months ago. I was in the Holy Land. And he talks about how a priest came along and then a Levite came along. And when they saw this man who was bruised, battered, and broken, injustice perpetrated against him, they did not stop to help him. Because King said, they asked this question, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan came along, King says, and reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question of this hour. If you do not stop to help this brother, this sister, of this expression of God's Imago Dei, with all the influence and authority and power that you have. You've been given. Are you my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper?
0: No. That's, a, I mean, that's an amazing word. It's challenging. It's pushing me towards wanting to be better, to learn more. And, and just to speak to my listeners and to anyone listening to this, of, of the younger generation of, of my age, Of this is our torch to carry now. We have to learn from this and we have to go forward to make our country stronger and better because with the diversity, our country is beautiful. And that is when our country works, is when, when black brothers and white brothers can join hands and we can move forward, we can progress towards the change. We want to make together. And as next generation leaders, we gotta be ready to take that torch. We cannot sit back on our heels and wait for our parents to change this be, because it it starts with us. It starts with the change in your own heart. Lee, who's around your dinner table, who you're hanging out with, who who you're who you're talking to, who you're learning about, learn the stories. But as next generation leaders, we gotta take the torch with pride and we gotta run. And we gotta keep going and we can't stop. But Goody Lee, thank you so much for your time. I've learned so much and Gosh, I'm, I'm just praying for our country right now and, and, and that Jesus will come soon.
1: Thank you so much for this, Zach. We appreciate you inviting us on. Lee, it's been great, man. Look forward to partnering with you. And we're grateful, of course, for our beloved Dallas Baptist University uh, and uh, for all the work that it's doing to advance our nation and our community, uh, both there in the state of Texas and even beyond for, uh, forward. So we appreciate that. Go, Patriots. Go, Pats. Come on. Thanks, fellas.